Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look inside the world of defence and foreign affairs. This week... He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. After the riot at the Capitol, Donald Trump is impeached, but he remains president for a few more nerve-wracking days. If he tries to order military action, will his forces disobey him? Should Joe Biden commit to keeping US troops in Afghanistan? Politicians in the UK say yes. Plus, we'll look back 30 years to a key moment in Britain's military history. It is actually in your mind every, every waking moment and sometimes when you're asleep as well, frankly. We speak to those in charge during the Gulf War in 1991. It was only afterwards that I couldn't believe our luck that we got through this without taking a lot of casualties. As Donald Trump's presidency enters its final week, he once again achieves something previously unthinkable. Breaking news tonight, Donald Trump, now the only president in U.S. history to be impeached twice. Ten members of the president's own party joining every House Democrat to impeach him for inciting the deadly attack on the Capitol. The president of the United States incited this insurrection, this armed rebellion against our common country. He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. If convicted in a trial in the Senate, he could be barred from ever holding public office again. And what happens if, in those final days, Donald Trump decides to exercise his powers as Commander-in-Chief? Well, let's speak to Scott Lucas, Emeritus Professor of US Politics at Birmingham University. Good to speak to you today, Scott. There actually seems to be a real prospect of Trump being convicted in the Senate, even though that won't happen until after he's left office. Yes, the most important development beyond the House vote to impeach Donald Trump were statements by Mitch McConnell, the top Republican in the Senate, who has protected Trump for almost four years. McConnell has said that he will not hold proceedings in the Senate before Inauguration Day, which, of course, is only a week away. At the same time, he indicated that when the trial takes place after Joe Biden's inauguration, that he is open to the conviction of Donald Trump. And that's vitally important because if Mitch McConnell, the top Republican, votes yes to convict Trump, He, in effect, can whip other Republicans to follow him, and you might then get the 17 or 50 Republicans who'd be necessary to join the Democrats for that two-third majority to convict Trump. The effect of that? Well, it would deny Trump a presidential pension uh, of more than $200,000 a year, but probably more importantly, the Senate could then take a vote and, by majority, say that Donald Trump would be banned from ever again standing for public office including the presidency in 2024. Mm, And 2,000 National Guard troops were at the Capitol for this week's impeachment vote. Reportedly, 10 times that number could be there for Joe Biden's inauguration. That doesn't really convey the idea of a peaceful transfer of power, does it? Well, no, and I think we need to be honest here that whatever your political leanings, what we witnessed on January the 6th was immediately after a call by a sitting president to march on the Capitol and to block the congressional confirmation of his successor, who had been elected in a free and fair election, that Donald Trump supporters responded by attacking that building. They not only attacked the building, they killed a police officer, beat him to death with a fire extinguisher, and they threatened to kill legislators and even Donald Trump's vice president, Mike Pence. That's the first time that American citizens have attacked the symbol of their own government since the foundation of the republic. This is probably the most 
important moment in American history, not only since World War II, but probably since the U.S. Civil War. Well, I'm also joined by Professor Michael Clark, former director of the defence think tank, Rusi. Uh, Michael, the Pentagon said this week that they do not tolerate extremists in our ranks. Presumably, they'll be concerned about the number of both veterans and serving personnel under suspicion of involvement in that riot. Yes, they will. They worried about this sort of thing for a little while, the number of uh, Trump extreme supporters, nothing wrong with being in the armed forces and being a Trump supporter, of course, but the number of people who might be activists uh, and be prepared to countenance some of this anarchist-style violence and the number of, of veterans who may be involved, because that's a pretty bad image for the military. The Pentagon wants to make it very clear that if they identify people, certainly anybody who is presently serving will uh, uh, will be for it, but also I think they will be calling out as much as they can any ex-members of the armed forces whose faces turn up in that riot. And Michael, how significant is it that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, sent a message to the whole of the US Armed Forces this week reminding them that their job is to support and defend the Constitution? Yes, this is very similar to the letter that Mark Milley sent out last year when the Trump administration, or President Trump, was talking about mobilising the military against the Black Lives Matter protests because there is no constitutional role for the military in that sense. And the letter, like last year's, doesn't say anything about the Commander-in-Chief. It just reminds the military that its duty is to the Constitution, not to its commander-in-chief at any given time. There is a precedent, for example, uh, which goes back to the presidency of Richard Nixon when he ordered a tactical nuclear strike against North Korea. Uh, His national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, in the military said, uh, let's wait until morning and see what happens then. And by then, Nixon had stepped away. What we had was not only a House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, call the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, to ask what would happen if Trump uh, decided to launch a war, say, against Iran, or even consider using a nuclear weapon. But it wasn't just that Pelosi contacted Milley. Pelosi made it public that she had done so, and indeed, so did Milley's office. In other words, there was a signal even there by the military in acknowledging that conversation that yes, we uh, you know are keeping an eyes on Donald Trump. Yeah, and just briefly, Scott, if you were to launch into the future and look back at this moment, how do you think history will regard Donald Trump and what do you think his fate will be? I think if we can get further away and get to dialogue and decency and sensible government, we'll realise that for four years, Donald Trump, a reality president who had been a reality TV star, uh, stepped on the US Constitution, tried to decimate the American system and cause significant damage. What history will hope will record is, is that after 2021, the good Americans stepped in to repair some of that damage. Scott Lucas, thank you very much for your time. Now, when Joe Biden takes the oath of office next week, he'll have plenty to occupy him at home. But he also needs to decide whether to follow through with Donald Trump's plan to withdraw remaining U.S. troops from Afghanistan. This week, a House of Lords committee has said Britain should be lobbying the U.S. to keep its forces in the country. Lord Hannay, who sits on the International Relations and Defence Committee, says the U.S. presence is vital to the success of peace talks and the president-elect will need to address the issue quickly. I don't think he can avoid taking early decisions, not just about troop levels, but about the way the Doha talks are going uh, and what the United States future policy for Afghanistan should be in one of two circumstances. The talks fail or the talks succeed. 
and he needs, and we need, policies for both. Professor Michael Clark, the report says Britain's ambassador in Washington has been pushing the Biden administration to keep forces in Afghanistan, but the mood in the US for some time has been to get the troops home. Yes, uh, um, there's a sense that uh, you know, this war has gone on for far too long, of course, um, and that US troops must come home. And President Trump began his administration by saying, you know, we will get out of Afghanistan. Now, the present plan is that US forces will withdraw in May this year, May 2020, 21 regardless and the problem that that puts in creates for the British and for other forces who are there is that that looks like a losing strategy because once you you know give yourselves a deadline by which you will withdraw regardless then the Taliban you will just sit it out which they are doing and remember the talks that have been going on are really between the United States and the Taliban these talks being that have been going on in Doha in Qatar the talks process is very stalled and at the moment, it looks as if the, the best thing to do would be to leave the troops there so that they can aid the Afghan National Army in holding off the Taliban. But if, if Western troops go, the British certainly won't stay if the Americans go, and effectively the whole uh, strategy just collapses thereafter. This is BBC One. We are interrupting our film for a news report. In the newsroom, we join Martin Lewis. War has broken out in the Gulf. We are going over live now to Washington to the White House uh, spokesman, Marvin Fitzwater. President Bush will address the nation at 9 o'clock p.m. tonight from the Oval Office. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. It's 30 years since the Gulf War began. More than 50,000 British personnel were involved alongside the US and close to 40 other nations. The conflict started with a six-week air war, then a land battle against Iraqi forces that lasted less than 100 hours. The starting point was Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in August 1990, as Rob Olver explains. US forces called it Desert Storm. The British... Operation Granby. The goal was to force Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. The Iraqi dictator had invaded the tiny oil-rich Gulf state on the 2nd of August 1990. If Saudi Arabia was next, Saddam would control more than half the world's oil. Within a week, US fighter jets had arrived in the Gulf, followed by the Royal Air Force. By October 1990, 7th Armoured Brigade had left Germany for Saudi Arabia. Cameras greeted the arrival of Challenger tanks. The Desert Rats would be joined by a second British Army of the Rhine Brigade. The number one concern was chemical and biological attack. For months, soldiers had to take nerve agent protection pills. Anthrax and plague vaccinations were part of a cocktail of injections, later blamed for a set of conditions known as Gulf War Syndrome. It was the first smart bomb conflict. For 42 days and 42 nights, Air bases, bridges and enemy positions were struck. The Royal Artillery, from inside Saudi Arabia, pounded Iraqi forces across the border. Everything was now set for the ground war. The most important thing was to actually get through the American breach. We were concerned that that large concentration would be a chemical target. We're constantly on the move and the time it was actually time for us to debust, there was relatively nothing for us to do. The Iraqis reportedly had 125 battle-hardened brigades. The big fear was a gas attack and heavy casualties. Neither materialised. Exhausted and hungry Iraqi soldiers were now rapidly surrendering 
and in greater numbers than anticipated. As Saddam's forces stared defeat in the face, they began to retreat from Kuwait. They also started the biggest oil fire the world had ever known. More than 650 wells were set ablaze. In the final hours of the conflict, fleeing Iraqi troops had reached Matla on the road to Basra. Strewn across the Iraqis' original invasion route was all that was left of a three-mile convoy. The tanks, personnel carriers and stolen Kuwaiti cars had been heading for the Iraqi border. American aircraft had targeted the front and rear first. Then what had become an enormous traffic jam would be bombed relentlessly for hours. The largest ever firework display was how one pilot would describe it. Others called it a turkey shoot. Some condemned the attack as a shot in the back. Others argued that the convoy had been heavily armed and posed a threat to Allied troops. A vast effort to clear the Basra Road involved royal engineers. Among the first to drive through were Arab coalition allies given the honor of liberating Kuwait. In six weeks, the largest international military effort since the Second World War had evicted Saddam Hussein. Rob Olver with that report. When Saddam Hussein's forces invaded Kuwait, Margaret Thatcher was the UK's Prime Minister. But by the time the conflict started, she'd been replaced by Sir John Major. He told our reporter, Laura Macon Isherwood, how it felt to be in Downing Street on the day the fighting began. January the 16th, 1991, was my son's 16th birthday. And I had been out there to see the troops. Many of them were little older than my son. There were many there who were 18. The bulk of the troops to be involved in mainstream fighting were between 18 and 23. From my perspective, they were very young men indeed, and some of them still looked like boys. And I could superimpose my son's face on many of those young people, because another two years and he might have been there. And that made it very vivid and very personal. And I was also aware that whilst they were well prepared and trained for what they had to do, their families bore a great burden while they were there, not knowing about chemical and biological weapons, not knowing how powerful the Iraqi Republican forces really might have been. It was a harrowing and terrifying time for them. I remember just as hostilities started, I had a broadcast which was aimed predominantly at the families, to tell them firstly that this was a moral war, that there was an undeniable justification to go to war, and also to try and reassure them that we were there in overwhelming force, and that we had taken every precaution we could to limit the number of casualties. And as it happened, the casualties were infinitely less than our very best projections, infinitely less. But obviously politicians are asked to make unbelievable decisions and, like you say, affect the lives of people like service men and women. Do you, do you bear the weight of those that are lost as well? Uh, you do. You think all the, throughout the whole of hostilities, because of time differences, the bombing, with which, was, which was the first uh, 14, 15, 19 days of the, uh, of the campaign, to degrade the Iraqi uh, defences was carried out from, uh, from the air. And that started at midnight every night. I think I was up 
every night till two, three o'clock in the morning to see how it was going and then back up awake again at six o'clock to see how it had gone. So yes, it weighs very heavily on everyone concerned because I think we're very conscious that older men and women send younger men and women to war. We may have to make the decision to go, but they bear the risk of being seriously injured, perhaps for life, or not returning at all. And yes, that does weigh on the mind. It can't not do so. How much of an impact do you think it had, though, on the world, geopolitically? I think for quite a while it had a very big impact. If you consider what was happening at the time, um, a year or so earlier, the Soviet Union had imploded. China was beginning to rise, but not remotely to the extent that she was going to in the next 20 or 30 years. So the successful conduct of the Gulf War left America in particular, but the West uh, more generally, in a much more authoritative position than it had been before. America in particular was seen as an international peacekeeper. Now that lasted for quite a long time. It was pretty severely damaged because the Second Gulf War in the early part of this century was far less popular around the world than the first one. Many people were much less satisfied about the justification for it. And so with the rise of China and the beginning of the return of Russia to be mischievous again, it began to eat away at American dominance and has done so ever since. Does it feel like 30 years ago that this happened? Well, that's very difficult to answer. When you look back on it, yes, it does seem a long time ago. When you focus on it and on the people you met when I went out to the Gulf and on the commanders who led the British forces out there, the memories are so vivid it seems much closer. I remember standing on Challenger tanks and talking to literally hundreds of servicemen and women who were gathered round. I remember they were holding placards. Hi, Mum. Can I go home now? And then talking to them privately there were two things that were said to me then that I don't think I will ever forget. One, talking to some youngsters. These boys couldn't have been more than 18 or 19. I asked them how they felt. And there was a silence for a moment. And then one of them said, it's our job. It's what we were trained for. So they were ready for it. And then I remember after the conflict was over, going back and speaking to them again, when I made the most popular sentence I or any other Prime Minister has made for generations, which was simply, you'll be home soon. And you could, uh, you could tell from the reaction that these young people had been through a great experience. Those who were there had come through it unscathed and they now wished to go home to their families and their friends and their domestic life. And those are moments that live in your mind forever. Sir John Major speaking to Laura Makin Isherwood. Well, back in 1990, 7th Armoured Brigade was chosen to go to Saudi Arabia as part of the coalition. Its commander at the time was Brigadier Patrick Cordingly. He's been speaking to Claire Sadler about his memories 30 years on. The orders were to destroy the Republican Guard, who were the sort of second line of defence after the Iraqi front line, which was full of conscripts and the regular army actually probably fairly useless soldiers. But the Republican Guard had good equipment. They had to be destroyed if Saddam Hussein was to lose his power base. And destruction meant exactly that, destroy everything you saw. And 
So that's what it was. And our, our part in that was to look after the right flank of the US Seventh Corps as it went north and then turned to the turned to the east to destroy the Republican Guard. So you start, you go through, 7th Brigade is the first. What do you face? Well, we didn't know what we were going to face. It's one of the extraordinary things about this war. Vast amounts of equipment there, but nobody could tell us what was immediately to our front. The reconnaissance hadn't been that effective, or even if it had been that effective, it was such a large organisation, it never filtered down to us. So we were uncertain. We were given a few objectives where we knew there were Iraqi positions. But, you know, when you suddenly go into an area and the weather wasn't good at all, and you're not quite certain what the hell is there, it's actually unnerving. The one good thing, though, was we knew that the positions immediately to our front had been bombed for weeks on end. So is it unlikely anything worthwhile was still surviving there? Did you face much? No, we didn't face much resistance um, in the first 24 hours. We did some. The Iraqis fired at us and we fired back. But our tanks were so, so superior that anything the Iraqis had from time to time, our infantry got out into the slip trenches with bannets, the real, oh, not old-fashioned, Second World War stuff. And that can't have been much fun. That must have been very frightening indeed. But after 24 hours, the Iraqis had lost the will to fight. They knew that they weren't going to. The message got round. We were much too powerful. How would you describe the land battle with the Iraqis? The land battle was, to start with, extremely noisy. When we got up to, before we went through the breach, the noise of aircraft bombing the arrows in our front of us, our own artillery firing for a week before we went in. Afterwards, there was a sense of exhilaration when you're doing these things. You overcome the fears, you're far too busy. And with getting people to move in the right direction, everybody was moving very fast indeed. There wasn't much time for reflection at that stage. It's, come on, we've been told to go to some place. What's good? What are we going to meet there? So there was always, if you like, at that stage, we're winning. We're going to win this thing. We're going to win it quite easily. So let's get a move on and do it as quickly as possible. We had some problems and some, some moments when you stopped for a moment and thought, this is, and this is not going well. I don't know quite where we're meant to go next. But by and large, it was adrenaline. We're going to get on as quickly as possible. There were 47 British casualties of that war. Did you expect it to be that kind of number? While we were training and getting ready to fight, I remember saying to the media, uh, there are a lot of people going to die. And trying to explain then that it wasn't going to be our casualties, but if you got two armies, then it was about 300,000 on one side and half a million on the other. If these two armies are going to meet, inevitably, a lot of people are going to die. But... They won't be asked for better training, better equipment, etc. So I think for a long time, I thought that actually we might take quite a lot of casualties. Now, as the our war went on, and as we heard of the disasters to the Republican Guard and how they were being destroyed, I think I got more confident that we were going to do it quickly. And if we did it very quickly, whatever it is we were told to do, we probably wouldn't take that many casualties. But I had steeled myself, and I think we all had, for taking a number of casualties, so much so that I remember when we did lose the first person in the battle, I didn't register anything at all. I was told about it, but I just psyched myself up saying, I can't get involved in how many people die in a certain 
action that's going on. I've got to concentrate on what we're trying to do. So it was only afterwards that I couldn't believe our luck that we got through this without taking a lot of casualties. And we only in the brigade lost four people, whereas 43 were lost elsewhere. Patrick Cordingly, commander of the Desert Rats during the first Gulf War. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael, Patrick Cordingly saying he couldn't believe his luck in having such low casualty numbers. It was astonishing how quick and successful the conflict was. Yes, there were two big strategic issues, I think, that made it so fast. Um, one was that this was like a NATO in the desert because the Allies were effectively the NATO Allies plus quite a lot of others, but they took the whole of the NATO battle plan from Europe and transposed it with all of the equipment and all of their procedures and all of their training and put it in the desert. And then they found afterwards that Saddam Hussein had kept most of his forces on his front with Iran. He was so worried, but remember that he'd fought a, an eight-year war with the Iranians in the previous decade, and he was so worried about the Iranians that most of his forces were actually still lined up for that conflict. So it was a 100-hour war. It was brilliantly successful. It was the sort of thing that, that Staff College um, uh, cadets, as it were, study uh, as, a, as a war that is almost, with, I don't mean to de decry it, but it was almost without complications in, in a purely military sense. Indeed, and the then Prime Minister, Sir John Major, said that the success of the Gulf War boosted America in the West on the world stage, but it also set the stage for the second Gulf War, which did the precise opposite. Yes, because, I mean, this war was about expelling Saddam Hussein and the Iraqis from Kuwait. They'd invaded Kuwait out of the blue, naked aggression. You have to throw them back, just liberate Kuwait. But, of course, the war was so successful and so fast that everyone said, well, just don't stop, keep on going to Baghdad, get rid of this wicked dictator. Now, that was never a practical option because the coalition would have fallen apart if they did do that. However, the West then became very irresolute in the sense that it said, well, we don't want Saddam Hussein now to persecute the Kurds in the north or the Marsh Arabs in the south. And they began this air, this no-fly zone over northern and southern Iraq. And so Britain, America and France, initially France was part of it, began this air operation that ran all through the 1990s, right through till 2002, to the beginning of the Second War. So in a sense, we were never at peace with Iraq during that decade. And there was this sense, we didn't quite know whether to try to remove Saddam, as we subsequently tried to do in 2003, or just leave it and said, look, we've liberated Kuwait. What happens in Iraq is not our business. Well, to mark the 30th anniversary of the Gulf War, BFBS has produced a six-part podcast telling the stories of those who were there. Jade Calloway is its presenter, and she joins me now. Hi, Jade. Um, it's a pretty big story, as we know, to tell, hence the six episodes. Yeah, it is a huge story to tell 30 years on. We're sort of exploring various different aspects from the conflict itself to what it was like for those back home and its legacy. It's really been quite a big learning curve. I'm 30 years old, so this was going on when I was tiny. One of the first things we encountered that was confusing for us was what we would call this, because we discovered that everyone sort of refers to this conflict by a different name. Op Granby crops up if you're chatting to other British veterans, but I tend to refer to it as the first Gulf War or Desert Storm. I have to admit the Americans are very good at this and are very Hollywood and Desert Storm was a good one. Yeah, Gulf War One is how I refer to it. When you were talking to your shipmates, you wouldn't have said we're on our way to Operation Granby. 
Lots of different voices there, Jade. Who exactly have you spoken to then for the podcast? So we've got representation from all three services who were there. We've got some um, tornado navigators um, who flew missions. We have uh, someone who's drafted onto HMS Heckler supporting minesweepers a nurse who deployed from Germany uh, with the British military hospitals and uh, went to one of the forward field hospitals is very much told through personal experiences and recollections. And you also talk about what happened once the fighting ended. We do. So we wanted to give a nod to the legacy. The Middle East is, is a place where the armed forces have been a lot since 1990 and 1991. So uh, we've looked a little bit about the legacy um, since Gulf War One. We kind of work our way up to that throughout the six episodes, um, starting this week with a bit of the backdrop in 1990, where the world was at, but work our way all the way on to the legacy by the end of it. Jade, thank you. And the podcast Granby, The Storm in the Desert, is available from Friday, January the 15th, wherever you get your podcasts. And Michael Clark, 30 years on, Britain is still involved today in Iraq. We can't have imagined back then in 1991 it would last for so long. No, um, 1991 seemed a short, sharp war for a good cause. As John Major said, it was the right thing to do. The problem with military operations is that you can turn them on, but it's very hard to turn them off again. And I think that's what we've we've discovered uh, and that we live in a grey area world in which these outright wars like 1991, like 1982 in the Falklands, they're the, the rarity, the minority. Most conflict these days is a sort of grey area, not quite a war, not quite a peace. And we've found ourselves drawn into those uh, in the in the past. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. In a brand new original BFBS podcast. Tonight, the battle has been joined. Decision makers. The Gulf War was very much the first televised war military commanders. There we were witnessing that. And ordinary soldiers, sailors and airmen. At night you could hear the firing from the American Navy using their cruise missiles and the battleship shelling the Iraqi forces ashore. Hear the story of the 1991 Gulf War. The conditions of being in the desert were a huge impact. When you're trying to maintain infection control, it's really, really challenging. Told by those who were there. Where I found it most terrifying when we lost a jet from Bahrain. And you're sitting there thinking, I might not come back. Granby, the storm in the desert. Wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.